With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There you go. Talk Recorded live. Hey, this is Outlaw Nation. And we are live and I have background computer thing. So let me turn off my volume here. Already off to a good start, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is part two of our um, presuppositional podcast. So let me turn off the volume on this, and then we will get started. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear it. All right. I'm just turn it off. All right. So now I'm muted there. So I've got the I've got the um, chat room open, so I can monitor that while we talk. Okay, just so you're. Case. So who? So am I controlling the? You yeah, you're in control of the panel. No, oh, you're okay. in control of the panel, but I'm in the chat room just so I can see if there's anybody that comes in in case you're talking or. Okay. Um, so so that way we're both watching it. Um, I don't anticipate anybody to come in, but if they do. And then we can either block or engage them. So Okay. All right, well, let's just get right into it then. So this is uh gonna be our part two presuppositional uh hold on, my phone's already beeping on me, it's dying. So just for anybody that's starting to listen to us, we had some major technical difficulties. We had to yeah. shuffle some things around and uh uh try to figure out how to open the room with the technical difficulties we were we were having so um we'll get the ball rolling here eventually okay i got it all right so or was i okay so this is a part two of our uh presuppositional uh i guess series you could say uh we're just i guess we're just going to start right where we uh kind of alluded to in our last one if you haven't listened to that i would highly recommend going and listening to that um if not, I'll do a slight uh, kind of recap on what we discussed in the last one, just to give you know new new listeners um, some background, just kind of a some basic summaries of things. But in this one, we're going to be focusing on kind of the history of philosophy, uh, mainly materialist philosophy, and sort of how all of it basically collapses upon itself and uh, how the only, I guess, resolution to all of the problems inherent in materialist philosophy is presuppositionalism or a revelationist um, epistemology. So I guess I'm going to start with this book I have. It's called Systematic Theology by uh, Vincent Chung. And I, I mentioned that I actually mentioned him in the last podcast. Um, but he does a very he does a pretty good introduction to this subject. 
in this book. So I'm going to read a little part out of it. It says, Knowledge of God is also possible only because God has made man in his own image so that there is a point of contact between the two despite the transcendence of God. Animals or inanimate objects cannot know God the way man can, even if they are presented with this verbal revelation. God has chosen to reveal information to us through the Bible, in words rather than images or experiences. Verbal communication has the advantage of being precise and accurate when properly done. Since this is the form of communication that the Bible assumes, a worthy theological system must be derived from the propositions found in Scripture and not any nonverbal means of communication, such as religious feelings or experiences. Now, every system of thought begins from a first principle and uses deductive or inductive reasoning or both to derive the rest of the system. A system that uses inductive reasoning is unreliable and collapses into skepticism, which is the self-contradictory position that knowledge is impossible which is itself a knowledge claim, hence the violation of the law of non-contradiction. Since induction is always a formal fallacy in that it often depends on empirical data and that it produces universal conclusions from particulars. Absolute certainty only comes from deductive reasoning in which particulars are deduced from universals by logical necessity. However, since deductive reasoning never produces information that is not already implicit in the premises, the first principle of a deductive system must contain all the information necessary for the rest of the system. This means that a first principle that is too narrow will fail to yield a sufficient number of propositions to provide its adherence with a meaningful amount of knowledge. Thus, both induction and, and, and an inadequate first principle in a deductive system make knowledge impossible. Okay, so to kind of comment on that, to kind of give a slight recap of our last podcast where we mainly focused on induction and the problems therein, uh, induction, like he said, it's, it's a formal fallacy. It's always formally fallacious. We discussed this in detail in our last podcast. And that's because, well, it, because of many reasons, but the main reason is it's, it commits the formal fallacy of affirming the consequent, which basically, to give an example, goes like this. If, if it's just, this is an example of the fallacy. If it's raining outside, then the ground will be wet. So that's our first premise. Second premise, the ground outside is wet. Conclusion, therefore, it's raining outside. The problem is, is that your premise there does not necessitate your conclusion. There could be an infinite number of other possible reasons why the ground outside is wet. It does not have to be raining. You know, it could be, you know, your a pet or a dog could have, you know, peed on the ground. There could have been a fire hydrant exploded. There's an infinite number of possibilities. Now, i, I got to insert a couple of things here. Okay. Um, because... I've been studying a little bit about this because this directly affects the uh, the scientific method. And, yes. And, and, and one of the uh, – this is the main inherent problem with the scientific method. Yep. Now, honest scientists recognize that this is a problem. There's a whole paper on it. If anybody wants to go look it up, just type in Stanford, uh, the problem of induction and the scientific method, and they have a very long paper outlining different – 
kind of different degrees of inductive uh, possibilities because one of the one of the things that you'll hear atheists talk about because this is really what we're what we're facing when we talk about um, the problem of induction, scientific method, and primarily materialism is this is where atheism stands. They stand on, and you'll hear atheists talk about it a lot. They'll talk about, well, science disproves the Bible, or science does this. They'll make really broad claims about science, what science can do. Yeah. And they will, and they will also stand. Most, most of them do. Although I met one guy that was said he was a spiritual atheist. I have no idea what that means. But most of them will stand by materialism. Well, I think and, most. I, well, we could get into that later, but I, I would actually say that most atheists are spiritual and that they they hold some form of Buddhism. But we can, because uh, yeah, well, they all they all have to be monists, which I made a comment to you on Facebook because right. they can't it, they can't individuate any numeric substance in reality, yeah. which we'll get we'll get into that. But keep going. So <laughs> that's that's all I wanted to say about that is that. Scientists do recognize the, the fallacy of induction in the scientific method, but what they do is they ones, kind of ex- with your view, honest ones. Yeah, and and not all of them, you know, and and to be uh, honest, not all scientists are that uh, familiar with no. the scientific method. They just use a methodology, and it's assumed a priori that it's a valid system of. Uh, uh, inquiry and um, you know mainly involving observation but one of the main criticisms you'll find them talk about if you listen to the debate between uh, uh, Dr. Stein, George Stein and Dr. Greg Bonson uh, George Stein brings this up quite a bit. It's it's insufficient philosophically but it is an objection they'll bring up which is that based on probability you know and uh, but for instance, uh, they can say things are going to happen the same way every time without affirming a um, an absolute or or a law. You know, so what they'll say is, well, the sun came up, you know, yesterday and the day before, and for my entire life, uh, therefore, it's a high probability that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. So right. they're basing it on probability. But they the pro- they fail to recognize is they can't prove the sun is going to come. Oh, oh hold on. The problem with yeah. that is like I, like we said in, in our last podcast, the only way you can justify induction is inductively. So it becomes right. one big circular argument. Right. You see that? Yeah. Yeah. See, their their reasoning is well because it's come up all those times in the past. Right. Well, that doesn't necessitate that it's going to come up tomorrow. <laughs> right. You're using induction to prove induction. That's a circular yep. argument. And I think Greg Bonson brings that up. And for another, there's no way you can even make a claim of probability without claim without affirming a uni- a universal because probability is always a fraction and the mm-hmm. numerator is is you know what's probable and then the denominator is a universal. You know? Mhm. Particular over a universal. The denominator is always universal. <laughs> right. Not only that, but there's an infinite number of prob- possibilities in it with induction. There's an infinite number. Okay? So if you have one probable possibility, it's going to be one over infinity. What does that right. reduce to? Zero. 
Right. Zero so that means that our sun could become a black hole tomorrow. You can't guarantee the sun's going to Again, come up. so you have 0% yeah. possibility of knowledge in that system. Right. Yeah. I just want to bring that up because, you know, I I know we're doing a second half, and the first half was pretty heady, and we were talking a lot about the history of philosophy and and yeah. uh, the history of presuppositional thinking. But, but you know, now we kind of have to take the hay out of the loft a little bit and talk about, okay, well, how do we use this practically to talk to people that are caught in this materialist system? My experience lately with atheists is that they are not very philosophically driven, that what they have is a few arguments that they think that are uh, particularly um, uh like zingers, you know, particularly Christians, and yeah. they kind of stick to those. But when really pressed with philosophical dilemmas, they're not prepared to deal with them. Now, I can't say that all atheists are like that, obviously. I, actually, I found a really great blog. I, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll have to maybe uh, point back to it on a future podcast. But it was actually an atheist that's writing the blog, and it's and he's actually, you know, sifting through these ideas of, uh, uh, philosophy and and uh, reason and he you know I a lot of the stuff I got on Immanuel Kant I got from him so there's not unreasonable atheists out there uh, you know and I very think very even, rare it, but it's pretty rare. rare because most of the ones I met and there were probably in the last month I've talked to about ten different atheists online and had significant conversations and I'm, again I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush there. Sure, there's intelligent atheists out there. I just haven't met them yet. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, uh, I mean, you're, you'd be hard pressed to even find an atheist that's like actually even talking about the issues with induction. Right. I mean, which which right. goes to show you you could really make a case that there's like a conspiracy to hide this information because. Well, most of them are satisfied with these little memes I see. You know, I'll see a meme that says, remember when you talk to theists, you're talking to somebody that believes that kangaroos were on the ark or penguins were on the ark, you know, or something like that. Oh, yeah, the sh- and, uh, raw man argument. You know, just, yeah, I mean, they're just, uh, they are arguments that are fallacious in themselves but look funny and they don't allow a Christian really to interact with them or they take a long explanation. Yeah, um, you know, which they don't. Even they won't even entertain. True, yeah, even if that was true, is the entire Bible false based on that one premise? You know, I mean, it's so it's, it's it's things like that. I mean, you know, there are people that believe in the historical uh, value of the Bible without saying it's inerrant in every way. So you're you're taking that out too. You know, um, so they're they're assuming that everybody is saying the Bible's infallible in every way. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that, that they're making that assumption before they even really engage a theist. Right. So, but go continue with where, where you were. I just want to throw that out about the problem of induction because um, science is not, when I say science in an overarching term, there are many scientists that understand the limitations of the scientific method. It's mm-hmm. not something that is unknown. Right. Uh, we're not just making that up and then science says, or, or most scientists say, no, 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 I disagree, you know. <laughs> no, the information is definitely out there and it's been admitted. 
before. Right. It's on record. It's been admitted, actually, by one of the most famous atheist philosophers of all time, Bertrand Russell, which I'm going to right. get into quoting him here later. Well, I think but, even uh, Dawkins the question, would the say that. Becomes just why you, know, you never hear this? Why is it not? Well, why Richard Dawkins even says it. Richard Dawkins just made public quotes that he he can't know that there's a God, you know, that kind of thing. So he's yeah. not saying there isn't a God. He's just saying like, you can't know. And I'm, I think that through presuppositionalism, you can know. And, you know, we we can get into proofs for God later, but... Um, well, um, I, I don't even think you can know, know knowing itself without presuppositionalism. You can't know anything. Right. Knowledge itself is impossible. Yeah, and that's where the presuppositional position uh, rests. It says that you can't you can't explain reason, you can't explain oh. logic, you can't explain oh. knowing, you no. can't explain the human mind, you can't explain creation itself without you oh. can't you can't explain really anything without nope. assuming a, a creator as a first cause. Yeah. That's intelligent and, uh, and is a person and revealed these things to us in the form of logical propositions. Right. Now, there are people within the Christian axi- camp that disagree axioms, with presuppositions. Or axioms that you have to assume a priori and then deduce from those, you know, mm-hmm. to, to have a valid argument. Go on, what were you saying? Oh, I was just saying there are people within the Christian camp that disagree with presuppositionalism. They say that, you know, you are you don't have to start, start with these supposed presuppositions. You can start another... Uh, you, you can start with reason and, and proceed forward. That's not circular reasoning. And what's funny is when I listen to them, like I, I, I listened, I think we mentioned that in the last podcast, but we, yeah, I was listening to R.C. Sproul and, and he was talking against presuppositionalism and yet he was having to ignore some presuppositions to explain away presuppositionalism. So it was right. kind of funny and, and self-refuting in his talk. So right. um, it, it, it's, uh, I think it's, a position you really can't get away from. And uh, even in talking with, interacting with some of the atheists I've been interacting with in the last month, uh, they will mock presuppositionalism, but they don't have an answer for it. You know, and I said, because they were bringing up um, uh, this YouTube guy. I'm not that familiar with him. Sai, have you recognized that name? I do not. Uh, Okay, so I, I know there's a guy out there that, brings up the presuppositional position quite a bit. I'm not familiar with him, but um, anyways, this person was saying, you know, the botched attempt by this YouTube personality, and I was like, so because this guy doesn't make a good case, that invalidates all of presuppositionalism? That was <laughs> that was this guy's position, and I was like, you can't do that. You know, I'd be like saying that because you have an idiot atheist out there, that that invalidates atheism. That could say the right. same thing. Right. Um, you know, actually, I think I did say the same thing. I said, well, just because you're not putting up a very good uh, position, does that invalidate, you know, your position? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you admit that, okay, I guess you got me there. But, um, so, anyways. All right, so moving on now with, uh, so we addressed induction. And so deduction is concerned with validity, but unless you have a self-justifying first premise or starting point, the proof of your deduction will reduce to an infinite regress 
of how do you know your first premise or starting point is true, thus making it arbitrary and, and knowledge impossible. So, so give an example of that, Chris. Okay, well, so we we talked we went over deduction in the first first podcast. So well I'll I'll give a I guess slight recap of that again. So deduction, you're going from a universal to a particular um, it's concerned with validity, meaning if your premises if your premises are assumed to be true, then your conclusion has to be true by necessity, which is literally the definition of validity. So to give you an example, so to give an example of a deductive argument, you'd be like A or you'd be like all all trees are plants. And you'd, your second premise would be A is a tree. So what would your conclusion have to be? It has to be A is a plant, right? Mm -hmm. It's necessitated by the premise, correct? Correct. The truth of it? Right. Okay, because your premise was uni a universal, universally quantified truth statement. You know, it said all, all trees are plants. The whole category of trees is in the category of plants. So if A is a tree, obviously A would follow by necessity would have to also be a plant. Correct. Okay, so the problem with that is is that there is still presuppositions being made with that first premise that are unspoken and that are taken a priori. For example, you would be assuming that your senses are reliable. Mm -hmm. You're you're assuming that we're not living in a holographic reality by making that First premise. Well, you're also yeah. assuming that you have uh, examined all trees in the right. universe, so exactly. you can't you can't make that claim. So you'd have to have a claim of omniscience to, yeah. to do that. But I mean, I, I'm just talking like basic. Like you're assuming that that what we're observing with our eyes is not a holographic illusion. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We could be living in a matrix reality where the whole reality is a hologram, and everything we're seeing is an illusion. So, how do you, you know what I mean? You're you're making the hidden assumption, the unspoken assumption, with that first premise that you know we live in a concrete material world that you know we can know these things. We can know that all trees are plants. You know what I mean, we can know that our senses can reliably give us this information. And there's all kinds of assumptions that are being made in with before you even make that first premise that are not spoken, and that that there's no proof for those first premises outside of themselves. You know, you just have to assume them to proceed with the argument. Mm -hmm. You know, are you following? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. I guess we will get into the kind of the history of philosophy now, like we said we were going to do. Uh, I got a book here. It is called Thomas Jefferson Was Wrong, A Complete Refutation of the Enlightenment. It is written by this guy named Drake Shelton. He goes by the handle or username uh, Southern Israelite on YouTube. I stumbled across him a while back, and I'm just amazed because uh, he basically came to the same 
process of discovery of discovering these things that I did, um, the problems of induction and logic and all that. And he's wrote, he's written a lot of very scholarly works on these issues. So let's see here. Uh, let's see. So I'm going to read some portions out of his book. Okay. So just the. So he says right here, now to introduce the reader to the most reduced down basic problems of enlightenment philosophy, which is you know, basically secular philosophy, materialist philosophy. A list of atheist and liberal logical fallacies. Ad hominem, Drake is a crazy racist. Don't listen to his arguments. In other words, I don't like how Drake's arguments make me feel, therefore Drake is insane. Accident fallacy. Killing another human being is a crime. Therefore, war and capital punishment is a crime. Affirming the consequent, or begging the question. If Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, we should observe homology in species. We do observe homology in species. Therefore, Darwin's theory is true. We went over that in the first podcast. Right. There could be an infinite number of reasons why that we observe homology and species, such as the same creator creating everything. Well, let's just let's just make a, a claim that evolution is based on the worst form of scientific induction, because you can't even observe the morpho the the major morphological changes. Yeah. And so <laughs> what what they are doing is they are always reasoning from observation and assuming. Uh, by induction that that uh, applies to past events. Yeah, it's one... And, and, the, it's, and the, there's no limits on these small changes that they observe. It's a uh, huge begging the question circular argument. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, that is always the main argument with uh, modern evolutionary thought. So... Um, yeah. You know, or modern experiments, I should say, in evolution. Now, you know, there's other problems with evolution besides just looking at, um, you know, genetics or, uh, you know, changes within a species that are observed now. But there's, you know, paleontology paleontology problems, you know, on top of it. And then there's um, uh, problems with the initial... Uh, creation of complex life, you know, because, and, and this is a this is a big thing um, that you'll find if you start reading about it. Um, so let's let's give the evolutionists like a long rope to to hang themselves. Let's assume that uh, there is complex life at its very uh, beginning of reasoning from the evolutionary stand- standpoint. And so you have a complex cell, and, and then we allow them to use natural selection and mutation to create uh, all life on the planet. Now they've got a huge problem, because you're starting with complex life, a self-replicating cell, yeah. and the genetic code and everything that goes into that, you know, the replication of proteins and all that. So then, now you have to go back, and this is where 
the evolutionist runs into problems. And you'll see people denying that this is actually part of evolutionary theory, although almost every evolutionist uh, that is even neo-Darwinian would claim that, you know, origins is part of the evolutionary theory. But yeah. But a lot of people recognize the problem here with evolutionary theory, so they'll deny origins of life have anything to do with evolution theory. But it naturally has to. So yeah, here's the big problem. Here's the, yeah, it necessarily has to. So the big problem is that you have uh, to reason from no life to complex life, and then you have this uh, big gap be- between that that is yeah. unexplained. And that is where I think Christians let evolutionists get away with uh, murder because you can't use mutation or natural selection. If you have no life, then there's no reason for it to be selected out for survivability. And so you have to explain by natural processes how you get from non-life to complex self-replicating life. Now, let's give the listeners here an idea of the uh, reason that we (laughs) don't want to let the evolutionists do that. Because human beings with their creative energies and with their uh, intelligence, quote-unquote, we can't create self-replicating machines at this time. I'm not saying we will never be able to, but that is the level of complexity that you're dealing with. And yet, we should not give them a free pass and say, well, it's a cell, you know, it has gears and things that work. And, you know, it, it's kind of this magical voodoo that a lot of people just say, well, you know, it's it's a simple life form. You know, the amoeba is just a simple life form. So uh, it can't be that hard to get from non-life to an amoeba. Well, I don't know. They, they can't even measure the divisibility of any matter, including cells. Yeah. I mean, it's it is it goes on, it goes on and on and on ad infinitum. They can't, they can never get. Uh, again, this is the, the problem with the materialist worldview. They can't even establish any numeric, any any part in nature, in the physical reality, or any any uh, yeah, any part, anything without parts, any any concrete substance, any numeric substance at all. Right. Everything is infinitely divisible. In materialism, they they can never reach a bottom. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it used to be atoms with atomism, but that was proven false. It's like there's ne- they've never found any. I can't really find a indivisible matter. I mean, that things are composed of. Well, I didn't want to derail you, but I just wanted to insert that there because there's a big problem with reasoning, but. Uh, but induction is especially prevalent within evolutionary theory. And, yeah. and and what scientists generally do is they they will recognize the problem with induction, but what they'll say is, well, induction works for certain problems, even though it's fallacious. <laughs> so we can, we can solve certain problems in science. So they appeal, and, they appeal to another fallacy to cover the first fallacy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know... The foundation of science is, well, yeah, it might be fallacious, but we actually are discovering things based on that fallacious method. Um, but what you can't do is you can't use that that real uh, problem of induction to prove the past. You know what I mean? You can't go back and say, well, you know, because of 
all this evidence now that we've piled up based on a, a, the fallacy of induction, therefore uh, evolution is true in the past because there's no other, you know, evidence to oppose it, you know. Whereas that's not the position of the creationists. They can explain through special creation all sorts of problems with um, the theory of evolution. The problem is, is I mean, I, scientists I would, aren't listening to the special creationists, you know. I mean, so, I would, I would, I would contend with them even on the claim that they're even making discoveries. I mean, I would ask them, how do you know that? And there's no way they could answer that with induction. It would just be reduce itself to a fallacy. Now, I th I think a lot of the foundations of science weren't really based on induction. They were based on... You know, uh, discover discovery would get into the realms of how, how can... how It would get into the realms of knowledge and knowing things. Right. You know I mean, it would, it would get back to the same problem. How do, Well, how do you justify knowledge? We're back at the same problem. <laughs> right. If everything well, is arbitrary, how can anything be discovered? You I mean, had a lot of uh, Christians who were scientists that formed the foundation of science and before the scientific method was even, you know, really founded. And what they were doing is just oh, trial yeah. and error. They were just doing trial and error, but they assumed uh, constancy of physical laws and, and they assumed that their observations were, were valid. So, you know, in a, in a way, they were presuppositionalists without, be, without knowing they were presuppositionalists just by being theists. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of the quotes, like there's that one quote, I don't remember, but it's like science is just trying to figure out what God did or whatever, you know, or how mm -hmm. God did it. Right, exactly. That's, yeah, that was, that's the basic message of it is they assumed, you know, this intelligent being created everything, which gives the basis for intelligibility itself, which mm -hmm. gives the basis for the scientific method and how you could even use it and rely on it to begin with. Right. I mean, how you how you could even make experiments and expect them to be repeatable, you know, and, and predict and your results predictable, the only way that could happen is if you're living in a universe that works in a mechanistic, consistent, intelligible, uh, uniform fashion. Mm -hmm. That's completely contrary to a are completely arbitrary universe. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. those are totally opposed. The scientific method would make no sense if the universe actually worked the way that, you know, materialists think it do. I mean, I don't, they don't actually think it does, but the way that it should work, and if their worldview is correct, you know, right. everything's just completely arbitrary, then... I mean, anything can happen about... at any time, so what's the point of assuming any constants or, you know, repeating any experiments or expecting any predictability at all. There is none. You have no basis for doing that. Well, and, and some of the argumentation I've been using in with this uh, presuppositionalism in mind, the, the three things I've been asserting that have been hard for the atheists I've been talking to to, um, to really deal with, and I'm not saying somebody can't deal with these. They might end up using other fallacies to try and disprove what I'm doing, or they may end up with a line of argumentation that I haven't run into before. But generally speaking, uh, the three forms of argument I've been using is that you have certain absolute 
uh, moral principles that nobody really can deny. And, and, and for instance, you know, rape is always wrong, for instance. I mean, we don't find cultures where rape is okay um, or rape of a child or anything, you know. We don't, um, we don't find cultures of that? Um, I, don't I would, think, I would be, I would be skeptical of that. Well, I mean, there's some pretty. I guess when you're reasoning with a Western person, you'd some say pretty, there's some pretty savage cultures out there, especially if you're taking all of history into account. Right. I guess. I, I guess you're right. I guess there are cultures. See, I was actually it's surprised because, because there were you gotta, cultures. You gotta, that, you gotta understand to establish a universal, it would have to take all of history into account too. Right. I mean, well, I'm not reasoning from their their perspective. I'm reasoning from the Christian theist view, which is that that is wrong. Oh, and we know that's wrong you know, by revelation. So you're, you're going from the perspective that you're assuming that they have this inner moral yes. sense. Okay. Yes, and I and I think God has given everybody that inner moral yeah. sense, but yeah. but you know, and there are cultures that where that has. I guess been suppressed, or you'd have to come up with a theory that you know maybe they're possessed in that culture. Has you know, I mean, you could even get into that would even get into uh, some differences with the races, but that right. Well, I I was telling you earlier that uh, you know I actually didn't know there was a culture out there that um, the story is is the missionary was talking to this tribe in in New Guinea, and he was trying to teach them about Christ and and uh, his sacrifice and everything, and they didn't they weren't really responding and they didn't seem like they were very interested until he got the story of, uh, of Judas, Judas's betrayal of Christ. And so they were talking about, um, how, you know, this was Christ's friend and he had heard all of Christ's teachings and, and at the very end of their relationship, they, uh, find that Judas betrays Christ. And that's when they were all like nodding in approval and, and smiling and asking questions. And what he found out is that in their culture, uh, treachery of that level was actually admired. And so they were kind of, they were, they were actually admiring Judas and they had a name for it. I forget the name for it, but it was a, you know, a tribal uh, kind of um, um, you know, known value that they had. I mean, there, and there you go. No, yeah, say, and, I mean that. I mean that's and they another. they identified more with Judas than they did with Christ, you know. That's, I mean, that's well. And, there's another assumption that Christians would be making that all races have the same innate moral uh, right sense, which I would I would say, well, maybe we need to. Maybe that's not the case. Right, and so that got me thinking, though. You know, even though see, we assume as presuppositionalists there are these absolute moral laws because we have an absolute moral law giver. Yeah. Um, And yet you can still find cases where even though the most extreme uh, negative or evil, we would call it a natural evil, there are probably examples where those uh, evils are accepted or even um, admired. And uh, so that is a, we can't really look for examples of consistency within human culture to say that morals are absolute. 
See, that's why we have to rely on presuppositional things. Uh, exactly. That's what I was going to say, which can totally wreaks havoc on any non-revelatory system of thought. Right. And I think it, I think it works well in reverse when you're talking. See, you're saying, I have to assume that these are moral absolutes. You're assuming them with no evidence. Right. Um, because you're afraid of your friends and your family and me calling you evil. You know, if you say murder's okay, or if you say, you know, rape is okay, and, and then they're, uh, then they're also presupposing evil, right? This thing, this abstract concept called evil, <laughs> exists. Right. And, I mean, so with no, to, uh, with no way to account for that either. Well, what's really funny in in talking with atheists is that they will vacillate the and, and most of them believe in some kind of abstract moral absolute okay um, oh, yeah. when really pushed because they don't want to appear like they're are, you know corrupt or bankrupt their their main argument is always well i don't need a book to tell me that i am uh moral and i'm like well i haven't even mentioned the bible yet or any of the books of the bible exactly so how how are you trying to keep saying you don't need a book? I'm not saying it's in a book. I'm saying I'm assuming a moral absolute because there's a, a lawgiver. And you're exactly. saying there's no lawgiver. And I can show you examples of how all of your supposed absolutes are not absolutes in different exactly. cultures. Yep. So why are you telling that culture that they're wrong? What By what standard are you going to point to that's yeah. above everybody on earth? And then they, yeah, and, the, and then that's when they back everybody off. is a universal, right. yeah. They, that's when they back off because they don't have a universal. They just keep pointing to themselves and saying, well, yeah. I think it's wrong. And they like, make themselves I, I don't care die. what you think. I right? know. <laughs> I don't yeah, care I what know. you think. <laughs> you know? know. You're, how is your standard binding on me? Exactly. So I, I'm always pushing them towards this. Okay, get out of your subjective. See, look see, at... See, this is basically what it comes out. This is the proof. This is proof of God by way of reductio ad absurdum, which is Latin for reduction to the absurd. You just reduce the materialist position to its absurd, you know, conclusion. Yeah, yeah. it's necessitated absurdity, and also by impossibility of the contrary. There's just, right. there's no other explanation possible to account for these things. So. So my line of reasoning is is based on that moral absolute principle uh, that there is a moral lawgiver because what they want to then do is jump around. The atheist wants to go and say, well, God's evil for doing this and this and this. I'm like, well, what standard of evil are you always pointing to? Exactly. Well, that's, the sec that's my second line of argumentation, believe it or not, because they want to go and always point to the evils in the Bible. And I'm like, but one person accused me of being, you know, just a horrible, horrible person because I... Uh, allowed, uh, you know, God to uh, the right to take all the young children's lives in Egypt when that, you know, the angel of death came on Passover. I'm like, okay, let's assume I lived back then and I'm Egyptian. How am I going to prevent God from doing those things? You know what I mean? You're calling me mm -hmm. evil for allowing it to happen, <laughs> you know? How are you going to stop God from taking a life? You're telling me, though, that you have more knowledge than God because you now exactly. can proclaim judgment on God for why he's allowed to take life. If he's, exactly. a life -giver, if he's a life giver, he can also take life. And I, so 
And exactly. they're looking at this specific example. So they're taking, you know, the example of Egypt and saying, well, you know, if if God's allowed to kill there, then, you know, that you're always assuming there's some greater standard than God by which you can judge him. But yeah. what I was trying to say is that everybody dies. So if, if God, if there is a God and he does give life, he takes that life back from everybody. There's nobody yeah, so the, the problem is point that, to. The problem is that God is the highest authority. Yeah. He has, so his standard is the highest standard. There is no higher standard that you can appeal to. Okay. Right. So you, you literally have to appeal to God's standard to accuse God of anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> Which exactly. becomes a totally self-defeat. Like I said, you have to sit in God's lap in order to smack him in the face. Well, then they come back and say, well, I don't believe in God anyway, so I can judge him. I'm like, that's totally... <laughs> that's like, okay, well... well then we, we, get back, we, get back, we get back to their position being reduced to the absurd. Well, how do you account yeah. for these things again? I mean... Yeah. It... Yeah, I haven't heard a really good uh, argument yet. Mostly, they just want to jump around and accuse God of being, you know, evil, and that slavery is justified in the Bible, and that, um, you know, all the all the uh, uh, laws. Actually, it was pretty funny. I actually ran across a person who, in the moral argument wanted to argue for absolutes, believe it or not. They were trying to school me on absolutes. I kept saying, I agree with you. I agree there's absolutes. But I'm trying to ask you by what basis you tell me there's absolutes. He could, he would never get over the fact that he kept accusing me of oh, I know. I saying think rape I, is I, okay. Did, I think, yeah, I think I read when yeah, I, I was reading that, yeah. yeah. So anyways, uh, so I kept saying, well, in another line of reasoning, you were saying that God is not justified for killing Sodom and Gomorrah. Gamora, but now you're saying that rape is an absolute evil, and yet that is what was uh, they were accusing the uh, uh, sodomites of wanting to do with lots of guests. So why are you saying God's not justified there, but that rape is not justified here? I don't understand right. your reasoning. It's just, so it all just reduces to the arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah, it was just arbitrary. It's just because well, you hate. Christians and you hate the Bible and you hate any authority over you. Yep. So really the logical, you know, what you what you find really within um, atheism is a lot of inconsistencies. Now, when people are consistent, I think it really reduces uh, the person to a natural evil because, um, and this is what atheists don't like, but if you take their conclusions that there is no afterlife, there is no judgment, and that, you know, uh, evils or things that are wrong are just societal norms, like, uh, for instance, we believe rape is wrong not because it's inherently wrong, but because all of society agrees that it's wrong and it's punishable by, you know, our laws. Um so you could reason the opposite. Well, if there's a society that, that where the majority says it's okay, then there's really no right or wrong, right or wrong above society. So now it's okay. And this is the argument you're really seeing uh, to a degree with uh, other issues like gay marriage. See, they're assuming because they are, quote, unquote, on the right side of history now, there's a majority saying that, you know, gay marriage is okay. They're they're not appealing anymore to this standard that's above everybody. 
they're appealing to the standard of the majority in human conventions saying, well, gay marriage should be okay. So now it's okay. Totally it wasn't contrary. okay 100 years ago, you know. And again, back to the, that, that goes back to the slavery thing, too. Back in the South, slavery was the societal norm, and it was a minority that was against slavery. Yet today, you know, I, I mean, today they flip everything. I mean, it's just, again, it just shows the complete arbitrary nature of that, of appealing yeah. to consensus. Well, it's also it's also arguing... Uh, with, with the issue of slavery, it argues against, um, you know, societal differences too, which you, it's really a, a apples and oranges argument because uh, a lot of uh, quote-unquote slavery in the ancient world was, um, and I don't want to say there, there was no bad slavery back in the ancient world, but much of it revolved around servanthood. And servants in households because you had a lot of more disparity between haves and have-nots in the ancient world. So people of means would have servants. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And those servants then were uh, kind of given a um, – you, you couldn't just go on to Etsy and make your own account and start a business. You know what I mean? You had to yeah. join a household to survive, you know, and that was the same thing behind, you know, a lot of polygamous uh, thought, too, was that, you know, it wasn't out of lust or desire to have many wives. It was more about survival for um, for the women because they had um, no means. You didn't have any power in a patriarchal society. You didn't have um, the ability to support yourself. So you had to align yourself with households and families and tribes to survive, you know. Yeah. And that, that's another, it brings up another societal uh, thing. You know, why did the Bible command death for children that disobeyed their parents? But back then, it was so uh, a matter of survival for the family unit to be intact that that was seen as such a horrible rebellion against not just God, but the the family uh, tribe and the survivability of the family, that that is why it was primarily, um, you know, it wasn't like, hey, you didn't eat your dinner tonight, so we're going to put you to death. I mean, that's what people think. That's not what was going on. So, anyways, I just want to bring that up. And, and, and people haven't even looked into, I mean, even like, like, I, like I said, like Southern culture, people haven't looked into that and how successful of a culture it was, how how mm-hmm. little crime they had because they followed these uh, mosaic laws, you know, capital punishment, and mm-hmm. they had virtually no crime, and they didn't mistreat their slaves, and actually, you know, the slaves were enslaved by other Africans in Africa cause, because they were tribalists. They enslaved each other. And then they were sold to the Northerners who brought them over here and then sold them to the South. I mean, it's just, they're totally misinformed on all that. And it's just, I mean, the whole slavery thing is just ridiculous anyway because the sexual revolution, which was, which was atheistic in nature, created the worst slavery in the history of the world, which is the sex slave industry here, you know, the pornography industry. That's the worst slavery we ever. I mean,
the sex, the sex slave trade, the pornography, the industry, that all came out of the sexual revolution, you know, which was which was born out of uh, um, atheist uh, beliefs. Alright, so it looks like Eric uh, had to step away for a minute, so I'm just going to go back to my book here and keep reading the fallacies. Okay, so we were on affirming the consequent. So another example of that, of that would be if the Earth is moving, there will be a bulge at the equator. There is a bulge at the equator. Therefore, the Earth is moving. If the Big Bang Theory is true, objects will explode when under pressure. The atom exploded when under pressure. Therefore, the Big Bang Theory is true. Anecdotal fallacy. My black grandmother told me she was raped by a white Southerner. Therefore, Southern slaveholders systematically raped their slaves and created stud plantations. Appeal to authority. Creationism is wrong because the professional scientists reject it. Geocentrism is wrong because the professional physicists reject it. Drake is not a scientist, therefore his quotations of scientists are quote mining. Appeal to consequences. Science is true because even if there are logical fallacies at the root of all science, people still need it. Appeal to fear. If creationism is broadly accepted, we will lose the business of future investors. Appeal to force. The South was conquered, therefore it was wrong. Appeal to motive. Heliocentrism is true because it appeals to our motive of humility. Geocentrism is false because it appeals to man's motive of pride. Appeal to novelty. The scientific revolution is true because it is modern. Appeal to popularity. Everyone believes in heliocentrism, therefore it is true. Appeal to probability. The slavery institution can be abused, therefore all slavery is abuse. Appeal to pity. White Southerners should accept their own genocide and ethnic displacement to make up for their legacy of slavery and racism. Appeal to ridicule. Creationism is for fools. Appeal to spite. Slavery and racial preservation is wrong because Southern people are uneducated rednecks who deserve to be annihilated for their legacy of racism. Appeal to tradition. Heliocentrism is true because it has been the hallmark of the scientific revolution for centuries. Appeal to wealth. Drake Shelton is wrong because his ideas have not produced a wealthy lifestyle. Argument from fallacy. Creationists use arguments that contradict the laws of physics while adhering to the laws of physics. Therefore, there was no creation. Argument from ignorance. Southern slaveholders systematically raped their slaves and created stud plantations. You can't prove it wrong, therefore it happened. Argument from personal incredulity. I cannot imagine that the earth is fixed and in the center of the universe, therefore heliocentrism is true. Argument from repetition. American black men are victims of institutional racism. Argument from sil silence. The Bible's stories were based on pagan myths. Argument to moderation. The traditional account of the Roman Catholic Inquisition gives white Protestants a claim to being an oppressed group of people in the history of mankind. 
Though we must condemn the Catholic Church for the Inquisition, the number of white Protestants murdered and tortured by the Catholic Church must be much less than traditionally stated. Begging the question, the earth is spinning and orbiting the sun, therefore the balls in the middle of the earth must be a result of this spinning. Cherry picking, Darwin denoted races as the objects that evolved, but I reject the reality of races. But Darwinism is still true. <laughs> Hey, Chris, I'm, I'm back, so uh, hey. I I just didn't... It was getting noisy around me, so I was trying to move all my stuff uh, out of the room, so I didn't want it to interfere. Yeah. Um, so did you... What, you started just going over some uh, basic fallacies? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but go back to the one with with the... Um, um, Okay, somebody in the guest room is saying, if you promise not to kick me out, if I write things, you get angry at here, and I will turn off the getaway. <laughs> I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, I was... <laughs> I'm not sure either. <laughs> um... <clears throat> so, anyways, go back to the one where it was uh, saying about institutional racism. What policy was that? Uh, argument from repetition. American black men are victims of institutional racism. Oh, okay. You know, what's funny is that a lot of techniques of social conditioning are based on fallacious uh, uh, or fallacious thought, but because they repeat it so often, um, yeah. you know. Yep. All right. <laughs> One of the things that I, I wanted to uh, go back to... Um, <clears throat> was when uh before I left uh, we were talking about the the you know argument from absolute morals and um you know and then how do you judge god based on uh you know a higher standard if you can't point to a higher standard well the third one was uh <clears throat> in a material world how do you account for immaterial laws of logic and yeah. so um Possible. Yeah, I've been studying a little bit about logic lately just because I'm anticipating somebody trying to challenge me on that. But, um, you know, logic is a very uh, complex uh, subject. And for somebody to just say, well, it's a human convention, um, then you have to really dive into the foundation of logic. You know, it's are the laws of logic just a human convention for us to solve uh, certain problems of thought, or are they always true? Mm -hmm. So why don't you address that real quick? Because I think that's a really important point. Because these are immaterial things. So how do you, how do you point to immaterial laws? Uh, the only thing you can say to get around the, the immaterial nature is that they, you know, derive from human thought and they have circulated enough that most humans agree that these are truths, but they aren't universally true. You know, that's the only thing you could really say. So why don't you, why don't you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I know you were going through all the fallacies, but um, what I'm trying to do a little bit more with this podcast is give people listening a uh, and people that, that will listen to this in the future a little bit more uh, practical arguments that they can use from presuppositionalism to kind of defend the theist point of view. 
Uh, hold on a second. Well, I mean, I would just say that it. I mean, if if, if it's all just convention, that would just reduce to. It would. I mean, it would ultimately just reduce to the arbitrary again. So. I mean, there's. It would just completely. That would invalidate their claim itself because how how could they know that? I mean, well, first, how would they even know that it's a convention then? Right. Right. So you're back to the idea that induction has to prove induction. I mean, yeah, you're back. To, yeah, you're you're back to how you even justify knowledge itself. I mean, because that would be a knowledge claim, mm -hmm. right? That, that right. logic is just a convention. Well, how do you know that? Right. So. I think I actually have uh, some stuff on that that I'm trying to find here. Let's see. Well, th those are the three arguments I generally use. Is number one, uh, I. I know there are a few people out there, uh, and when I say people, I meant atheists I've been talking to, um, that would say morals are just subjective. They're just a matter of human convention, and the fact that we have laws at all are because of superstitious beliefs, yet they work for us for survivability, but it's based on majority rule, and so the laws are, there is no real standard above everybody except what we create. And there are people that would hold to that. Um, but most people have grown up, uh, I'm saying most atheists now have grown up at least with some semblance of Western thought, um, which is tied to the religious thought of the Reformation or the Catholic Church. So they are very uh, reluctant to stray from that, even though it doesn't fit in with their worldview. So atheists will still cling to this idea that there are absolute uh, moral premises, and but they won't, and they'll act that way, but they won't really admit it when when uh, pressed against the wall, or they will admit it and doom their own argument. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, so it, it becomes a real problem for them uh, either way. If they admit there's absolute morals, then how do you account for them? If you say there are no absolute morals, then you have a line of argumentation to go in and say, okay, well then, why is Jeffrey Dahmer wrong? Why was Stalin wrong? Why was Pol Pot wrong? How do you say they're wrong except to go back and point to some overarching evil over everybody? Mm -hmm. um, what right do you have to call somebody evil? And this is usually where I get accused of being a horrible person because I don't need a book to tell me that I am a good person. And uh, I'm like, well, we're not talking about a book yet. We're just talking about how you can say one act is evil and how another act is not evil. Um, it just becomes arbitrary. And you are now in an argument of arbitrariness. Um, but what, before I left, what I was trying... What I was trying to say is that if you have people that take these premises of no creator seriously, if there's no ultimate judgment, if there's no uh, 
morality except what we make as convention, then there are people that will convince themselves that whatever they do is okay as long as they don't get caught by people that disagree with them. And I think that's initially where, now, you know, admittedly somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer had a mental illness. I think he actually was a, a borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, in some of his statements, he did say that he did not believe in God and he didn't believe there was any judgment. So why not do what he did? You know, that's what he was saying. Right. Um, and and what right would anybody have to judge him except by societal norms? It's not normal to kill and eat people, you know? Um, right. But, but it was normal in the tribes of New Guinea, so... <laughs> Why why are you telling the tribes of New Guinea it's wrong? Just because we as a society say it's wrong? So you're you're left with this kind of round, merry-go-round uh, arguing because they want to cling to that theist idea that there are moral absolutes. So sometimes you just have to step into their shoes and say, what if what's the logical extreme of your worldview and, and teach it to them? And then I think that there is benefit to doing that. When yeah. you're, at least when you're discussing it with atheists. And you'll probably never get somebody that will just, you know, flip over and say, oh, I believe everything you say now. I, who's this Christ guy? Why don't you tell me more about him? I haven't had that happen. But I have met people that have had some kind of seed planted in their life in, in the past by somebody else, and then you get them after God had been working on their heart for a while, and now you're they've already been brought along, you know, they're like, well, I'm not an atheist anymore, so, um, you know, I'm I'm more open to things. Uh, so there have been a seed planted in the past that God's allowed to grow. So you don't know that you're not doing that. And that's kind of the motivation behind doing any of these things. I mean, I've had atheists say some pretty horrible things to me. Um, but I think you just have to smile and realize, you know, that they are coming to a perspective that, um, that's very hostile to Christians in general. And, yeah. you know, you just, you, you know, you're you're not above your master. Christ said that if uh, they do this to me, they will do it to you, and they'll do even worse things to you. So you just have to kind of have a martyr attitude towards um, discussion and, and not lose your cool and not play the game of uh, insults and ad hominem attacks. Um. Well, here's kind of a something on that question you asked earlier, kind of to elaborate on just, you know, if logic is just conventions, then, you know, it would just be reduced to the arbitrary again, but mm-hmm. this would kind of give more elaboration on that. It says, many unbelievers fail to understand the nature of presuppositions and belief systems, how they simply interpret physical facts themselves, such as DNA, fossils, rock layers, starlight, and other things to be support for creation or evolution. They simply don't see bias in our understandings. Even though they can't make sense of the concept of evidence, you can even grant them hypothetically that the evidence supports their position of evolution or anything by exposing they have no basis for trusting their reasoning about it according to their own worldview. They generally state that other people or peer-reviewed journals approve of their reasoning or position. However, they must use their reason to interpret what other people tell them or to read journals and articles. This leads them back to the problem of knowing how they are reasoning properly. They might respond by saying that they can't know if their reasoning is correct, but neither can you. 
after they confirm this, they have given up knowledge indirectly since reason is required for knowledge. Any statement that they say after that, they could be wrong about, and they can't provide a justification since they have given up reason. Since reason is necessary for knowledge, they couldn't know anything about you as well. Another possible response is reasoning is impossible and reasoning isn't real. This is another declaration that knowledge is again impossible. Also, you must use reason to deny reason. You are using thinking to deny thinking and is self-contradictory, which leads to being false. Any statement you say afterwards can't have an epistemology or justification for either. It's the same general problem as being unsure if your reasoning is proper. Yeah, and the same applies for logic, not just reason. So yeah, I mean it goes to the same same problems though. I mean, if logic is just conventions, then I mean, why can't we suspend the law of non-contradiction then? And I mean, so can atheism be both true and not true then at the same time? Right. Right. <laughs> it just it reduces to absurdity. See? And then now yeah. you can't know anything. Well, I think I think the first law of logic, which is A cannot be non A or there's a lot of different uh no, the first phrase, phrase the law of first law of the law of identity would be A is A. So it's basically yeah. saying anything is the same with itself and different from another. That's the law of identity. Right. So I'm yeah. talking about the law of non-contradiction now. I mean, it, yeah, that's yep. The law yep. of non-contradiction that a cannot be non-a. I mean, yes. If you know, people out there, if they can email us and tell us when a is not uh, non-a, then um, see, that's not just a human convention. You, if you can't imagine a way that a can be non-a, then that's universal and the only way you get universals is through a, a creative mind. Well, again, how is it even, by what, what standard would they even be appealing to you to make the determination that A is not not A to begin right. with? You can't, you, make an absolute without, right. you can't make an absolute claim without omniscience. Oh. We can make that claim because we're assuming that there is a creator that has made consistent absolute laws and one right. being you know, that we can know things like the law of logic. So that makes things intelligible. Yes. So if the laws of logic are just conventions, then everything just reduces to the arbitrary and unintelligible, and it right. <laughs> makes knowledge impossible. Right. Yeah. All right, so you want, do, you, do you want me to get into the kind of the history of philosophy now, or...? Well, you know, we're we're about uh believe it or not, we're almost an hour and a half into this. So uh um, that's amazing. I it's amazing how time just flies. I you know, I think that we did a pretty good job of just kinda going over some of the major uh flaws with um uh atheist you know, thinking. absolute morals. Yeah, atheist thinking in general. Just at a surface level. I mean I'm sure there's a lot of different uh niches we could crawl into with atheist arguments. But the big ones I run across, the ones that mock theists the most, number one, um, I hear, uh, you know, religion has caused more harm in society than any other, um, you know, uh, oh, that one's a laugh. basis of war. Yeah. So, I mean, how would you even prove that? How would you pr prove that religion 
has caused more problems than anything else. Well, first of all, almost every, well, I would say every ancient society was religious. So basically you're saying religion has caused all harm that was in the ancient world. Because I don't think you can point to a, a non-religious society in the ancient world. Uh, when people have done that, see, they they usually try to point to something they can't prove. Uh, I've heard people say, well, you know, uh, <clears throat> you don't have to, or, or these moral absolutes were, are older than uh, religions, you know, like murder is always wrong. And I'm like, well, you have to prove that statement. You can't just make, make it. And I said, where are these atheist texts? that show that murder is always wrong? Where are these atheist societies that recorded history that made claims that were non-religious? You don't have them. So, and if the laws of logic are just conventions, then what does it matter anyway? Right. But, <laughs> but there, well, that's, that's always the ultimate argument. But one of the things that they always point back to, so they're assuming evolution is true. So they're assuming, you know, people crawled out of the you know, mud eventually and, and came up with, some kind of basic morality that propelled us into society, but they don't really have it. Just sense. absolutely makes, which just makes no sense at all. Yeah, but it, there the, is really the tribal, the tribal killing mentality makes way more sense from an evolutionary standpoint than yeah. This you know this Christian ethic that they're that they're presupposing, but they're pretending that it's not a Christian ethic. Yeah. Right. Well, a second line of argumentation I've heard is primarily um, the uh, disbelief in miraculous things. And so they'll point to talking snakes, uh, the ark, <laughs> um, Noah's ark specifically, the burning bush, uh, just, you know, just go down the line of miracles. And they will, they will assume a priori that they that things like that can't happen. So uh, the Bible's untrue. And you believe in fairy tales. That's a fairy tale. Therefore, you're a fool. So that's the second thing I've heard them say. Um, and my argument back to that was, well, again, you're making a subjective determination that's false, and you weren't there. So again, you I are assuming that the eyewitness account is faulty for that account. Uh, the counter-argument is, well, you could go outside the Bible and say that the stories of Zeus are false, but, you know, you weren't there. Actually, I, I don't make that claim. I think that they might have been. <laughs> hey, no, they're, yeah, they're all straw man arguments. That's all they have. Right. Yeah, yeah, they're all straw man arguments. Um, especially, they like to revolve a lot around Noah's Ark, creation, um, and a lot of the things that are sometimes even... Allegory. Talking, talking snake. Like, mm -hmm. if you just read the account, it's clearly not a snake that was talking. It's clearly a humanoid creature. <laughs> it's just, it's just all straw mans that they have. So, and some of the other, um, well, a third argument I've heard is, um, you know, how how do you know just somebody wasn't sitting under a tree writing all this and and fooling people, and. See, now, th this is a really, um, really bad line of reasoning that I've heard atheists use because what they're saying is you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible true. And because what I often do is I will 
point to the historicity of the New Testament because I'm a little bit trained in textual criticism and I have some knowledge around, you know, how these texts, uh, or what these texts are, where they were found, how they're, you know, looked at, what their dates are, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. um, that is that is not a uh, fallacious line of study to say the Bible is a historical document, these are historical eyewitnesses, and therefore what they were saying can be uh, seen as an eyewitness account. That's not fallacious argument. Argument is trying to make truth, cl- or the, the, the fallacy is trying to make truth claims about the Bible by using the Bible. You know, like the Bible says in Second Timothy that all scripture is, um, you know, uh, beneficial, Sorry, everything, everything out of their mouths yeah. is just total deception because you could just as easily go back on them. Well, can you prove, like, Ptolemy's history without using Ptolemy's history? Right. I mean, we're not using the Bible to prove the Bi- this book, the Bible. Well, that's we're using my, that's the Bible, point. using the Bible to prove these historical events that happened. <laughs> right. What I'm trying to say is the Bible is, especially the New Testament, because you have, well, there's some noise there. Uh, the New Testament has its own historical verification. So, um, you know, these are ancient documents. They still exist. There's like over 25,000 manuscripts that are in existence, and they can be examined. They can be cross-referenced. That's the art of and science of textual criticism, is trying to establish the text. What were the original documents? And even if you had the original document, how would you know it's the original document? You know, it, you know, Paul didn't sit there and pen uh, Acts or I'm I'm sorry, um, um, Romans and say this is the original at the top. You know, so even if you had the original, there is no way to know that it's the original. But um, <clears throat> but what you can do is you can overlap existent texts, trying to get a sense for what the text said. And there's archaeological evidence that backs up what the New Testament says. So you have two different lines of verification. And then you have, uh, you know, first and second century uh, writers that are also writing about this. And you have extra biblical historians like Tacitus um, or Josephus that make mention of Christ or the Christians, you know. So it's not one body of evidence, but but I don't think um, a lot of people look at the Bible as a historical document or, or a collection of historical documents um, and give that any validity at all, and when they should, because yeah. you can't really know any ancient history at all if you throw out the Bible as being irrelevant. That's how good the textual evidence is. And you point out to them things like uh, the Iliad only has about 400 manuscripts in existence. You compare that with the New Testament where you have 25,000. Um, and, the, and the Iliad is the best, you know, piece yeah. of evidence uh, textually. You know, some of these ancient documents only have one or two copies, maybe just a few copies. Yep. Um, so... You can't trust any ancient history at all without giving the New Testament credit. Right. And then uh, 
will say, well, you know, we have archaeological digs, you know, that verify certain texts. Uh, well, the same is true for the Old and New Testament. I mean, there's hundreds of instances where the Bible has been verified that these things existed. Yeah. Um, so you, you, what the atheist has a problem with is the miraculous things in there. Uh, they don't usually don't have a problem saying, well, Babylon existed or the Hittites existed, you know, but you can prove those things. Um, they have a problem saying, you know, Moses talked to a burning bush. Or, I mean, which again, they're assuming that all the laws of the universe are totally static. Right. Well, okay, if everything's arbitrary, you should be expecting miracles every day. Yeah. So it's just totally a double standard that they're, you know. Well, I was just trying to kind of deal with that really quickly on this idea uh, behind, because I, actually I hear that one come up quite a bit, uh, which is how do we know it's just some people weren't sitting on your tree writing this? Well, because mm-hmm. you have uh, over 40 different authors. Okay, that's why. It's not one guy. You know, that's another common error. A lot of, a lot of these things stem out of biblical ignorance. They don't understand how canons are arrived at. They don't understand... Uh, the historicity uh, of events. They don't understand textual textual criticism. Um, they're you know, because atheists uh, 50 years ago would not make a claim that Christ didn't exist. That's how well established uh, historicity was seen for Christ's existence um, 50 years ago. But it's it's only recently with a few modern scholars that have kind of convinced the lay public that, um, well, we can't really know, you know, that Christ was in a myth. I think the Zeitgeist movie yeah. uh, did more to destroy people's uh, view of, of Christ's historicity than any other thing out there. And uh, yet the verification of the primary documents that Zeitgeist used uh, if anybody wants to go look up a really good analysis of Zeitgeist, uh, go to Chris White's uh, website, Nowhere to Run, and and look at his Zeitgeist challenge because the claims that Christ is just a retelling of the story of Mithra or Horus and these different things are totally unverified claims. Um, they're claiming that these are all parallels with people in the past and uh, just stolen stories and, and Christ is just a recycled story of Mithra or something like that. That is probably one of the worst and arguments I've ever heard. And all you have to do is dig a little bit and you'll find out that that claim is just flat out false. Yep. And if you are going to deny Christ based on a really easily verifiably false claim like that, then you need to reexamine your worldview because I would hate to see somebody deny God over something that is so easily disproven. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we should do a, um, a podcast sometimes on uh, the historicity of Christ and the evidence for it. Uh, I'd have to do some study on it. You know, I, I have facts on top of my head, but I don't have in-depth facts on top of my head. So Yeah, I, d- I, well, I definitely think, have to do a lot of study on that. You know, uh, just some of the other claims are, you know, things we've already covered, things that are just kind of arbitrary. Um, you know, Bible advocates slavery. I heard somebody trying to use, like, 
uh, trying to remember what passage it was, like out of First Peter or something, claiming that the passage uh, condoned rape, and I was like, what? It, and the passage had nothing to do with it. Um, uh, yeah. I think it had something to do with destroying the ancient world or something. <laughs> and I was like, so how does that condone rape again? And it, it was on a meme. It's amazing how many atheist memes are out there mocking, uh, you know, religious religious people. But there's a lot of them out there now. Yeah, I just think all that's just uh, you could say it's an onus probandi or shifting the burden of proof fallacy. Because yeah. I mean, we don't we don't have to defend the Bible. I mean, because our epistemology can actually account for these moral prescriptions. You have no basis for even claiming that they're morally objectionable to begin with. What is your right. basis? And I, I that's, think any presupposition we need to attack, say once you know once we've established the uh, it, that you need a, cre- a creator for intelligibility for knowledge and for objective morals, then you look outside of that uh, presupposition. You say, whose version of the creator fits um, the, uh, you know, the, the historical necessities that we need, you know? Who's, yeah. Whose God is preaching the, the message and has proof to back up those claims that he is the creator, you know? And uh, the Christian God fits that bill, so that's that's why I always start with presuppositionalism and then proceed to uh, using the revelation of of Christ because um, it it makes logical sense. Okay, well let's let's examine one of the most successful religions first, <laughs> and then find out if those are uh, you know. Let's find out if those claims match what we see in reality. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to say, I found a little extra here that I wrote in my journal. It says, the only way the laws of logic could be laws is if these were established by an omniscient mind to account for their objectivity and regularity. If they were our inventions or consensus agreements of man, they are merely conventions and reduced to the arbitrary and can be dis- dismissed just as easily. Because... Right, why, I mean, if they are conventions, why do atheists always presuppose these laws to debunk our arguments, like the same mm-hmm. law, or, or to establish their system of thought, you know, like the law of non-contradiction, the law mm-hmm. of, why, why are they assuming that those hold? Or, I mean, if those are just conventions, then why can't we just dismiss those? Right. <laughs> Again, it, it the, the, the main problem is that it all just redu- reduces to the arbitrary. So anything anything goes. Yeah. You know. I mean well, that that, does, that doesn't help their case. You know what I mean when they try to claim that, because then you can ju- then you can just turn the tables on them and be like, well, I mean if that's the case, then how do you know that your atheism is true? <laughs> See, every once in a while I'll get somebody that tries to turn around on me and say, okay, well, what's your higher standard? And I'll say, well, um, you know, we're not really talking about my higher standard yet because I do have a higher standard. And I can point to, you know, objective moral laws, but you're not going to like what I have to say because that involves a special revelation 
from right. God inserting himself into history. So that's the next line yes. of reasoning the presuppositionalist that's a Christian has to go to, which is, okay, so now we've established there has to, by necessity, be a creator based on objective moral laws and the immaterial nature of the laws of logic. So now you have to examine the special revelation claims of you know, the Christian religion. And and that's where I think that you you can go you can move from pre- presuppositionalism to evidential um, thinking um, with you know using the historicity of the Bible and using the eyewitness claims of the New Testament to show that Christ is a real person he had a real message and he really did write, raise from the dead you know even though that's not um, something in the norm it's and at least you can give a basis for why you believe that. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis makes a lot of these same claims, even before, because, you know, he was writing before Van Pill was writing. So, um, you know, in Mere Christianity, um, he kind of makes these same claims for, you know, uh, knowability and and uh, the reasoning for, for the Christian thought. So if anybody... Uh. It's not a mere Christianity is not a real big book, but I like the subtleness of uh, C.S. Lewis and how he wrote. Yeah, um, I was gonna, I was going to say too that it's funny how you find not a lot of atheists have a problem with concept of God like as an impersonal force or a consciousness. Mm-hmm. Even that one lady we argued with on Facebook, remember her? Who we both yeah. argued against? There was some person that like right after we got done arguing like they were they were a buddhist and they made some buddhist comment and she right. just completely was just like all in agree she was like oh i love buddhism like i mean they got no problem with that that stuff it's just when you get into god as a actual person you see who actually will you know render an account and just punishment for your deeds then it's we're getting in the territory where we don't like this. See, so we, right. we find out that atheism, it's not born out of logic or any kind of logical thought process, or it's born out of an emotional, they don't, they don't like, you know, it's an obstinacy, it's a hatred. It's just like... Yeah, and usually it's a hatred for the Christian God is, is yeah. my, you know, most of the criticisms are not around... There's a few people out there that will argue against Islam because it's so much in the uh, news lately, but most people aren't attacking Buddhism or oh. Zoroasterism or <laughs> Baha'i faith, you know. Uh, they just go, they try to go for the jugular of Christianity. And uh, they don't even really attack Judaism that much. They just attack Christians. Well, it's funny because they attack Christians with a lot of things that they should be attacking, like Judaism for stuff in the Old Testament. Right. <laughs> well, and that was a line of argumentation, Hold on, I would actually say that's a weakness of Christianity, though, and that they they can't, a lot of Christianity can't really account for the Old Testament, because it's, a lot of Christian theology is just, you know, they've removed the Old Testament from their theology, you know, just they don't—they really don't know how to explain it, right? You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I do. And 
mean, a lot of them have this antinomian kind of Gnostic mentality, and they think that Jesus abrogated, you know, the whole Old Testament and taught this new religion. And well, that's that's one of the biggest criticisms I see, not just from atheists, but people that are, don't really understand Christianity. They're like, well, you know, if you're going to use Leviticus to to say homosexuality is wrong, then you why are you wearing two fabrics made from different, you know? Uh, types of cloth, and why are you eating shrimp, and, and those kinds of things, and they really don't, which just, that's what bugs me about arguments like that, with just a little tiny bit of study, you could find out, hey, there's difference between dietary laws, and sacrificial laws, and laws that were kind of more for the tribe of Israel, and didn't necessarily really apply outside the tribe of Israel, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, so, those are things that Christians should engage more with. Is you know what's the yeah. difference between the, the law of Moses and you know the ten the ten commandments, which are contained within the law of Moses, or what were what were Christ's proscriptions about the Old Testament law? I'm yeah. sorry, prescriptions, not proscriptions. Yeah. So um, you know what? How because like you said, you know a lot of Christians just have become antinomian, so they just say, well the law is not binding on us. And then to a certain extent, that is true. Um, but it's it's not the whole truth. And, um, you know, we were talking about this the other day, that passage in Hebrews, when there's a change in priesthood, there is a necessary change in the law. And I think that, you know, Christians need to take that into consideration, that the law was not done away with, but there's definitely a change in the law and how we right. interact with the law. Because we can't, we can't obey the sacrificial laws. There's no temple. Right. So that's what's kind of funny when, you know, I, I hear atheists or people that are opposed to Christianity, or why aren't you doing this and this and this for the Sabbath? I'm like, well, we don't have a, we don't have a temple. We don't have, a, we don't have those laws in activity right now. If God's not requiring me to hold to the sacrificial laws when there's no temple, would, wouldn't you make that? That's unreasonable request you're asking me. So, yeah. you know, they don't realize there's different laws for different reasons and that, um, um, so that, that kind of nullifies theirs. But there are other laws, like there were laws uh, against same-sex relationships, and that carries over even into the New Testament. All you have to do is to go to Romans 1, and you find it right there. So those kinds of things are more uh, prescribed, and I've read some really horrible analysis, language analysis on the Internet, but, some, but there's really good ones done by Christian scholars um, what it comes down to is who you're going to believe. You know, you're going to believe some kid that wrote a giant blog and and was was a homosexual himself, and so he had a biased viewpoint, and he tries to butcher the language to make himself feel okay. Or are you going to believe the the uh, hundreds of scholars that have studied this for the last thousand years and come to the conclusion that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong? You know what I mean? All right. So, um, you know, people gravitate towards things that tend to make them feel better, not on... Like the, it's just like the whole New Age revision revision of alchemy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. The same, I mean, same sort of deal. Now, don't get me started on alchemy. We're going to do a podcast. <laughs> you know. uh, but, you know, I mean, there are a lot of uh, medieval alchemists and scientists who were Christian. They weren't 
they weren't occultists. They weren't into the occult. I mean, alchemy was seen as a uh, legitimate science and yeah. somewhat a persecuted science because it was based on, uh, I believe it was based on not only deductive reasoning, but it was based on knowledge that was either passed down or you were taught it by another alchemist. And so it was, in some forms it was a more true science than our modern science because they were basing it on premises of nature that were already kind of established by history and then they were passed down. And then the, the alchemists were kind of reasoning out from these basic principles uh, that they observed in nature. So it wasn't I had an unbroken tradition of revelation all the way back to, to God who gave it to right. Adam. And then yeah, they just exactly. they, 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 de they deduced from there. And, I mean, you know, an example of that is how they believed that um, um, metals were, they grew. They just took thousands of years. They 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 were all trying to produce um, the growth of metals. Were trying to achieve an end in their natural process, which is gold. And if they yeah. were interrupted by temperature or the conditions of pressure or or something else, and they were uh, retarded in their progression, then they would end up as silver or tin or copper or something else. And so. But where did they arrive at this belief? They That was something that they were getting, I think, as you said, a, a historical or written tradition that was passed to them. Modern science wouldn't teach that, but that's based on induction, um, based on the universes they observe it now. It's not based on any knowledge they could actually point to and say, well, metals don't grow like that. There, you know, there was a big bang and all the metals were created at once. How do you prove a premise like that, you know? Right. You can't. Mm -hmm. So um, it's an assumption that science makes about metals, like the assumption they make that one metal can't change into another. Um, yeah. That's only because they haven't observed it, not because they don't believe it, you know. I mean, which is totally just inconsistent in their worldview, again, because they can't even establish any distinctions between any two things. Yeah. Yeah, place. you're going to finished with talking about monism. Yeah, you want me, do you want me to talk about that? Yeah, talk about that real quick. We're, we're coming up here in Hold almost on. two hours, and I think, the, I think the actual audio will shut off on two hours. Um, Hold on. Let me, let me find. I don't know how some people do four-hour podcasts, because mine only sets it for two hours. So um, I'm assuming at two hours it will say, you know, it's, it's not being recorded anymore. Okay, well, it's out, of, uh, it's out of that book. Okay, it says, One, materialism philosophically failed. It says, First, it must be understood that I reject the entire Enlightenment enterprise which rode the back of the scientific, quote, revolution in the 16th and 17th centuries. Some fundamental tenets of the scientific revolution were mere reassertions of previously refuted material. In specific, Democritus's atomism, which Zeno of Elia ripped to shreds some 2,400 years ago. First, some orientation with the pre-Socratics. One, corporeal monism. The pre-Socratic period is understood to begin with Thales, 585 B.C., until the time of Socrates, 400 B.C. Before the time of Thales, Greek philosophy was dominated by the drunken Homeric religion of Zeus, Hades, Apollo, and the pantheon of vice-stricken gods and goddesses of the ancient world. 
Accompanying this pantheon were the mystery cults involving strange blood rituals, trances, self-flagellation, and the eating of raw flesh. Wars were said to be determined by esoteric omens such as a serpent devouring a sparrow. Iliad 2, 308. This religion promised no eternal reward for virtue after death, nor eternal consequences for evil. There was only Hades to look forward to, a hopeless, dreary fate of nothingness. This age of mysticism was to end with the philosophers. Reason was to dominate the minds of men and not superstition. The beginning of this task was the school of the Milesians and, and Thales. They posited five major principles. One, all things have their source in a single substance. Two, this substance is eternal. It never began and will never end. Three, this substance cannot be exhausted and continues infinitely into space. Four, our world was preceded by others and will be preceded after it dissolves. Five, motion and change is spontaneous. This substance is alive and the tendency to change is essential to it. Change is not simply the result of an external force. This construction was defended with arguments that emphasized the organic relationship of all things. When we eat bread, the nutrition of the bread becomes our fingernails, therefore bread is fingernails. Water falls from the clouds and becomes trees, and trees become fire, so water is fire, etc. These men were the first to explain natural phenomenon by mechanistic laws. Instead of attributing rain to the direct act of Zeus, they attributed it to the clouds. Anaximenes attributed the emergence of qualities to condensation and rarefaction due to his belief that air was the original substance. Thales, through observation of the sun and the movement of the planets, posited a law and predicted an eclipse in 585 BC. Philosophy and scientific law was the groundwork for rejecting the Homeric religion of the Milesians' ancestors. Two problems arise. One, the problem with this construction is that qualitative differences cannot be explained if everything is the same thing. Two, how can a corporeal reality produce an incorporeal law? Then comes Heraclides, 527 to 475 B.C., in his famous Flux. He posited the idea that, quote, all things flow and are constantly changing. However, there is a law of change that does, that does not change. This Heraclides called the Logos. However, this is difficult to say when one believes only in one corporeal reality. Again, the corporeal monists are confronted with this question. How can a corporeal reality produce an incorporeal law? Then comes Parmenides, 475 B.C. He, not as religious as other philosophers who had rejected the polytheism of the Homeric religion to posit one god, merely posited the one. Parmenides was the downfall of corporeal monism due to his commitment to rational thought. He found assertions like, quote, water is fire to be absurd. Parmenides proved that being is eternal and immutable. Dr. Clark, in an exposition of Parmenides, says, quote, and this is Gordon Clark, Being cannot have originated or come into being. It cannot have come from non-being, for non-being never has existed for anything to come from it. Nor can being have come from being, for being is being without any coming. Therefore, origination is impossible, and being is eternal, immutable, and changeless. Parmenides demonstrated that the earlier construction was contradictory and that it posited unity and motion, but if being is changeless, there can be no motion. 
Parmenides' objection to the monist construction was based on the fact that he emphasized reason over sensation. The original construction was posited as a rational theory and thus the end of corporeal monism. Hmm. It says, says, two, corporeal pluralism. To retain the supremacy of sensation, the pluralist rejected monism to posit a corporeal pluralism. This was done in three different ways. One, Empedocles, 490 to 430 BC, posited four substances, earth, air, fire, and water. The qualitative difference between each substance is eternal. Empedocles avoided the problem of origination. Empedocles was still, however, trapped by Parmenides I. Even by positing a plurality of substances, each substance would still need to be eternal and unchangeable to be corporeal. In this case, motion cannot be described as spontaneous if it can be described at all. In this case, external forces are required for motion. These forces Empedocles called love and hate, one to organize and one to disorganize. This is the primitive form of ectropy and entropy. 2. Anaxagoras, 500-428 B.C. Substitution for the principles of love and hate was a mind separate from matter that directed the cosmos. Socrates later showed Anaxagoras' failure to develop this position and transcend the mechanist theory. What Anaxagoras did do is demonstrate Empedocles' mistake. Parmenides had shown that origination is irrational. Empedocles posited four qualitative differences to explain a pluralist cosmos. Therefore, every quality must be original and eternal. Therefore, instead of four substances, there are an infinite number, hair, vertebrae, fingernails, etc. To posit a construction that never ends is to have no construction at all, though Democrates tried it. 3. Democrates, 460 to 370 B.C., posited the classic theory of atomism. This is the theory that the cosmos is composed of an infinite number of atoms, each impenetrable, indivisible, qualityless, and subject to mechanistic laws. Presumed sensations are not to be understood as inherent in the atom, but in ourselves. Democrates did not find it necessary to explain motion in itself and posited it as an axiom. He explained motion generally as a result of a previous atom striking it. In order to speak of motion, Democrates invented the concept of empty space, something for the atoms to move through. Okay, now he goes and criticizes these criticisms. Zeno of Elia brought the pre-Socratic era to a close with his devastating arguments against sensation, space, and motion. First was his famous paradox, Zeno's paradox. To be brief, Zeno's major argument is that in order for Achilles to move from point A to point B, he must come at least half the space. If so, then he has to come at least a tenth, a hundredth, etc. He must pass through an infinite number of points in a finite segment. Thus, motion is impossible, and space is indefinable. <laughs> Devastating. And uh, you, uh, you uh, uh, texted that to me the other day, and that was uh, kind of interesting. Yeah. In answer to an objection to Zeno, Dr. Clark says, quote, One of the superficial replies simply calculates how far Achilles runs in ten minutes, easily a mile, and how far the tortoise crawls in the same time, hardly a hundred feet. This elementary arithmetic shows that if the tortoise originally had a lead of two or three hundred feet, Achilles is far ahead of the tortoise. This is superficial, and Zeno does not admit it. 
Of course, if Achilles could run for 10 minutes, he would undoubtedly outdistance our slow but patient friend. But the brilliance of the tortoise in setting the original conditions by which he won the race depends on the fact that Zeno is not prepared to admit that Achilles can run for 10 minutes. He is not prepared to admit that Achilles can run at all. Consider a marble rolling across a desk, or to be very scientific, consider an atom moving from one point to another in space. Before the moving body can reach the terminal point, it must obviously have traversed half of the distance. Surely the body cannot reach the end before it passes the midpoint. But before it can reach the midpoint, it must have come to the quarter mark. And before this, it must have moved one-eighth of the distance, and one-sixteenth, and so on. The quote, so on, however, is an infinite series with the result that the moving body must exhaust an infinite series before it begins to move at all. Therefore, motion is impossible. To another attempted objection, Dr. Clark says, quote, Another superficial attempt to solve the problem depends on balancing off the infinite divisibility of the space against the infinite divisibility of the time. The difficulty of infinite divisibility will prevent the time from starting as effectively as if as it prevented the motion from starting. To avoid both of these difficulties, they are, as you see, exactly the same difficulty applied twice. Aristotle in Physics uh, 8.8 as or argued that the moving body does not actually pass through an infinite series of points. Zeno says Aristotle treats one point, the midpoint, as two. He takes it as both the end and the beginning of a motion. But this can be so only if the moving body stops at this point and then begins again. If the body is in continuous motion, none of these midpoints is, quote, actualized. The points and the divisions are only potential and do not actually exist. Therefore, although it is impossible to pass through or exhaust an infinite number of actual points, there is no difficulty in passing through an infinite number of potential points. And then, he said, and then now Drake speaking. He says, A gentleman that I debated on this issue demanded that we prove the impossibility of exhausting an infinite series. Answer, this is argumentum ad ignorantium, or, or appeal to ignorance. Kelly says, quote, this fallacy consists in the argument that a proposition is true because it hasn't been proven false. To put it differently, it is the argument that a proposition is true because the opposing proposition hasn't been proven true. As a rule, it is the positive claim that puts the ball in play and the positive claim that carries the initial burden of proof. The gentleman actually made the argument that the statement, quote, it is impossible to exhaust an infinite series of points is a positive statement. Wow. Another objection, quote, one may protest that since an infinite series does not have the last term, Zeno cannot require the moving body to reach the last term before it starts to move. He cannot erect as a barrier to motion a factor that admittedly does not exist. And yet, did Zeno say that it was necessary to reach the last term? Will not his paradox remain if he simply asserts that motion cannot begin so long as there are more terms in the series? This is long enough. In a further complaint against the concept of space, Zeno argued that if atoms in motion required space, there must also be superspace for space to exist in, and another superspace for that, ad infinitum. <laughs> Second was his rejection of sensation. In an exposition of Zeno, Dr. Clark says, quote, when an ocean wave, quote, thunders against the rocks, no atom produces an audible sensation, but the wave is nothing but atoms. Therefore, it produces no sound. <laughs> 
<laughs> this failure to construct a material or corporeal reality was the formal cause of the atheistic sophist movement that immediately followed the pre-Socratic era. Protagora's man-measure theory was the new fad, and the idea of truth was buried as impossibility. After the Copernican, quote, revolution, the first pillar of the Enlightenment, the ancient atheistic theory of atomism began to influence the Western world. Trials were held in Naples and in Scotland at the end of the 17th century, which dealt with this issue. The substance of the atomistic theory on trial was that, quote, God neither created nor governed the world, which was formed by chance out of atoms and existed as a self-governing machine. And thus, because of this, that there were other worlds, that it was impossible, for Christ was born of a virgin, he was but a man, a leader of a sect, that there were no greater pleasures in the world than those of the flesh, that there was no hell, purgatory, or paradise, and even that, that there were no miracles, implying the resurrection as well. This theory was identified with ancient Greek Epicureanism. In 1671, the famous Jesuit-trained René Descartes was accused of reviving, quote, ancient Greek opinions concerning atoms. Thus, the foundation of the Enlightenment was comprised of a connection between Jesuit-trained Descartes, skepticism, atomism, and Epicureanism. Let the reader understand that the word, quote, atom, used in the philosophy of atomism, means indivisible. It is meant to reflect the fact that an atom is the most irreducible ultimate reality that exists in all the universe. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines atom as, quote, one of the minute indivisible particles of which, according to ancient materialism, the universe is composed. Yet, as we all learn in school growing up, Einstein and Fermi split the atom in the 1930s, beginning the process of nuclear fission. The second pillar of the Enlightenment was then silently destroyed in the 1930s. Why the religious community in America did not shove the secular world's nose in this huge event remains a mystery to me. A sympathetic, a sympathetic follower of atomism may still not understand the significance of this. If atoms can split, they can change. Yet, as Aristotle pointed out, in order for something to be identified, there must be a primary reality or substratum that does not and can never change, which atheists cannot establish, is the point. The splitting of the atom basically destroyed atomism's ability to speak about anything. Possibly the reader still persists that the Enlightenment, though a philosophical failure, still liberated man from the shackles of religion, ushered in an age of knowledge and prosperity never seen before, and is a practical success. Actually, that was the Protestant Reformation. The freedom of the press, which has made all modern learning possible, was a Protestant, quote, hearsay dealt with in the fourth session of the Roman Catholic Council of Trent quote, decree concerning the addition and the use of the sacred books. It was only after the failed final attempt of the Roman Catholic Church to destroy the Reformation with the Thirty Years' War that the modern period was introduced with the 1648 Treaty, or Peace of Westphalia. The Protestants demanded that all their people receive a basic education so that they could read the Bible. This was creedalized in our original Protestant colonies in America with the old Deluder Act, 1647. Yeah, and then he goes on, but uh, that's that's uh, you know, that's a that's a uh, a long quote. So I think. Well, that, hold on, I mean, hold on a second. I got, a I got one more. I got a little. But, uh, I just got a little bit more. Okay, what I was just gonna comment on is just say that, um, you know, that's something I want to go back and listen to because uh, and write down some of those names. Mm -hmm. Um. 
so I can kind of go back and, and see that that progression of thought because it's pretty interesting that um, you said that atomism has kind of its uh, roots in Epicureanism. And so you can yeah. almost kind of trace a philosophical beginning of atheism. Yeah. Um, and, and instead of it being assumed in the distant past, you know, with... Because um, I think what they do is they assume that nobody believed in God except through superstition, and then eventually you proceeded to logical arguments against God. That's what most atheists would probably state. Right. And then, um, and now because of our vast superior scientific knowledge, there's no reason to believe in God. That's kind of the argument I get constantly. Yep. Um, but it's neat to see that there was actually a progression of thought there that led to atom atomism and then a rejection of atomism that nobody really talks about. So. No. And atheists never, they never talk about, uh, you know, they have no indivisible, they can't even define what matter is. That's that's the point of what he's getting right. at. They yeah, can't even definitely. Construct. Materialism cannot construct a material reality. Right. Isn't that the whole point right. of materialism? <laughs> right. And I think that would be another good line of reasoning that I haven't used, which is when these people invoke science, don't go to evolution. I mean, I, I have an easier time talking about evolution because I have some training in it, but I think you don't have to go there when they invoke science. All you have to, because people want to engage them at their own level of strength, and so they want to engage them with um, things that contradict, uh, you know, Christian theism. But I don't think you have to do that. All you have to do is ask them questions like, um, you know, what is matter? How do right. you define exactly. faith? How do, exactly. you, how do you account for, um, you know, motion? How do you do anything, you know, you in science? To, through again, induction. you have to confront them at the presuppositional level. Right. Huh. Right. So he goes on, he says, Aristotle failed. He says, uh, Mary Louise Gill refuted all attempts made to provide a theory of individuation in Aristotle. In her article, quote, Individuals and Individuation in Aristotle, we are taught, if we take matter to be the principle of individuation, how do we individuate one unit of matter from another? Some will say, well, it's spatio-temporal location. Yet, this is circular. How do we individuate spatio-temporal locations? by the matter contained in that space. <laughs> so the matter is individuated by the space and the space by the matter. It is a circular uh, yeah. argument. <laughs> Two, I think you told me that one the other day, yeah. Uh, some have tried to use matter and quantity as the principle of individuation. Gill replies, quote, This criterion will not work for identical twins, two drafts of water from the same fountain, or a max black's pair of spheres which have qualitatively identical matter. Three, Another attempt has made material continuity the principle of individuation. Gill speaks to this issue on page 66. Quote, If two statues of Socrates are made out of the same bronze at different times, the statues are distinct because the time during which the matter constitutes the two is interrupted. In the interval, the bronze survives the destruction of the first statue and the generation of the second, if this is Aristotle's answer to the puzzle about material migration, then continuity of matter is not sufficient even to account for weak individuation. Continuity of time is also required. 
Four, some have tried to use form as the principle of individuation. Gill replies, quote, but it is not very good evidence. Some defenders of the thesis will respond that the forms of Callias and Socrates differ because they are realized in different parcels of matter. But then form is not, after all, the principle of individuation, since the matter, rather than the form, differentiates the particulars. <laughs> I mean, this, this, this just gets so deep, just how, yeah, how, all, of deep. Their, how all of their philosophy just collapses. I'm talking yeah. the basic tenets of their philosophy, like how to individuate numeric subjects in reality. They can't even right. do that. They have to, have to reduce it reduces to monism, you see? Yep. And with that, I, I think uh, we should end on that point there, Chris. Um, yeah. You know, in, we can you know, we can kind of in the future decide if we want to pick it up from here and, and kind of expand on that. Because actually, uh, maybe in our other room, and maybe just make a plug for that, because we're going to start doing some podcasts in our other room, and it's called The Edge of Reality. And I think that when we get into things that are more speculative, um, like, you know, what is the nature of reality or what is alchemy? Is that a valid science? Or, you know, uh, I definitely would like to do a podcast on David Polite's work on Missing 411. That'd be great. Um, you know, because I think those are yeah. great subjects and they're very relevant to uh, to what's going on uh, kind of on the fringe of our reality. Um, and we'll keep this more to you know, scriptural or philosophical matters. And uh, so, you know, I think we should end on this note, if you don't mind. And yep. uh, they have, we're, we're over two hours now. and um, But I think that we did uh, pretty much what we intended to do, which is to kind of uh, flesh out a little bit more on um, presuppositional thought in terms of what it means uh, what are the implications of thinking presuppositionally and how does it um, kind of disprove the atheistic how position to, how to counter materialism? How to, how to counter common yeah, atheist arguments and fallacies. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think if we wanted to maybe focus just on, you know, and enumerate them like one, two, three, the arguments that, are proposed, you know, the most common ones. We could do a show on that sometime where it's like, okay, here's an argument that I heard. How do you deal with it? And then yeah. you know, we can say, okay, number one, um, how do you deal with this argument about historicity? Or number two, how do you argue about this on the law? You know, that yeah. might actually be a really good one because we were just kind of mentioning them, mentioning them, but if we go back over them in more detail, I think that would be a really useful uh, podcast. So. Plus, we were drawing from real, you know, exchanges that we've had. Yeah, exactly. So we weren't just, like, pulling hypotheticals, like, this is stuff that these people commonly say, you know, so you're right. going to run into these arguments, so. Yeah, you are going to run into them, because um, I ran into them, <laughs> I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. All right, well, um, again, you can... Uh, you know, reach us um, through um, some different email addresses. Um, I'm trying to think if I set one up for this podcast. I'm pretty sure I have one on here. I'm just always looking up uh, if somebody had a question or something. But um, 
uh, we'll probably have to save that for our introduction wiki, which we haven't done yet. So, you know, if yeah. you want to contact us about a particular thing, I, I'm, I, I know I have one set up, um, but I don't see it listed here in my uh, show description. So, um, you know, we're still kind of new at this uh, podcasting stuff. So, uh, at this point, I don't think that we're really anticipating a lot of listenership yet. <laughs> so it's probably not as necessary to get, give out information on how to contact us. Um, however, we'll make sure we put that up in the future. And I, I do plan to do like an intro uh, podcast that kind of outlines, uh, you know, more of our mission statement for this particular room, and we'll do that for the other room, Edge of Reality. Yeah. Um, and then we can also uh, put down our contact information. We can just do kind of an intro that's pretty short, you know. Um, it doesn't have to be a very long one if we're just giving kind of the premise of, of these two podcasts. So, All right, man. Well, thanks for joining me today. And uh, yeah. if you think of more that we can add to this, we can extend this uh, this series. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you later. Yep. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.